I think that it's important that this series concentrate on those things which we see every day and we have to do for a living. All of us sit in a position where we have become, to a greater or lesser degree, an agent of the state. That phrase, just drunk, is very dangerous. Yeah, it's on the tombstone of a lot of emergency docs. The taking of blood is not an unreasonable invasion of the body. Medical care is your job. Judgment belongs to the Lord. So what is the deal with Wee Wee? My usual and customary practice is not to pee into a bottle and leave it on the well, table. When in doubt, you believe your exam, not a laboratory study. Somebody who's drinking wouldn't also take drugs, would they? Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's October 2007, Risk Management Monthly. I have with me the very handsome Rick Bucutta and the very pretty Greg Henry. It's good to be with you guys again. What are we talking about this month, Greg? You had a specific issue, something about the taking of excrement, sangre, and urina. We're patients. going to get to that, but I think that Rick has got a letter he's oh, got yes, to we're going to stop. Actually, this letter was written to you, Melvis. Oh, yeah, but you. you want me to read it? Or well, I can try to about. stumble through here. It's from your girlfriend. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> this is Dr. James Nelson, as writes us, and he says, either the mandatory compliments are in the beginning. Now, please read, read, read those. Read those. Read those. I like well, they're not that great. I mean, yeah. I really like high-risk EM series. You started. Thanks. Great job. Not more he, he than that. Than you know. That's what's yeah. <laughs> Keep it coming. I recently placed a 21-year-old anorectic patient on a psychiatric hold. She weighed less than 60 pounds. Her heart weight was 33. And she wanted nothing but electrolyte replacement, no nutrition. That part of it was easy. The hard part was her mother, who was essentially an enabler, opposed to supplemental nutrition, and told me if I proceeded with 5150, she would sue me. I documented my decision-making well and proceeded. I'm not terribly worried because I clearly did the right thing and justified it well. That being said, though, I can't wait until you guys cover psychiatric holds. Are we covering psychiatric holds in this letter? Well, that's really not the issue here. It isn't? No. The issue is taking charge of people. We talked about that, that last nice. time a little bit, but I think that he raises a very interesting question. We've got somebody now who is of age. They've got someone there with them. They can talk. I think he's right. I think he did the right thing, and that is if you believe that someone, even if they can speak to you, even if they're oriented, if they constitute a serious danger to self or others by virtue of their condition – then you need to intervene. She's 60 pounds. She has a heart rate of 33. The finally two athlete. What well, are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I think that he's done exactly the right thing. And for him to be sitting around spending too much time worried about that, I don't think that's a good idea. If, if he needs help, we'll go defend him because by virtue of the situation, I believe that we have defined someone who needs medical intervention. The fact that a family member wants you to do one thing or another doesn't stop you from doing what is correct. We've all been in situations where we have multiple family members who may be disagreeing about, do you save grandpa? Do you do this? Do you do that? You know, at a certain point in time, you have to pick a direction and go, and I think he picked the right direction and did it. So it seems to me that you're not allowed to commit suicide. That's against the law. Is it gonna, against the law? They're going to put you in jail if you do that. If you, you know what the penalty is? If the death stand. penalty. Right? Yes, right. And yet we're not allowed to hold you if you're a cogent and you're able to make decisions. But there are some times where your decisions are so stupid 
are so clearly a form of slow suicide, which in some people have said that's what anorexia is about in, with these women. That's what smoking is. a form of slow suicide yeah. that you have to say you're depressed. Even though you appear to have capacity, you clearly don't, and this may be one of those cases. You've lost your capacity because you're clearly suicidal. You've lost it. I think this is one of those cases where it is really worthwhile to get other experts involved in the case. I think emergency docs are very good at picking up people who have altered mental status, people who are not acting quite right, because that's something we assess every day. The treatment of these people is extremely complex. I wouldn't pretend for a second to know exactly how an anorexic bulimic should be treated. Incidentally, I am a hemi-bulimic. You all know that. <laughs> I eat. I just don't throw up, which is the biggest problem. Yeah. Uh, well, well described. <laughs> yeah. I saw a T-shirt down at Venice Beach a few weeks ago, which really made me laugh. This giantly obese man had a T-shirt on, which was the size of a small planet, this T-shirt, and says, I fought anorexia and won. <laughs> But I think this patient is asking for help, and he did the right thing at that moment in time. All right, now you're going to talk about uh, wee-wee and blood and the extracting of various ethers from people? Again, I think that it's important that this series concentrate on those things which we see every day and we have to do for a living. Mm -hmm. And all of us sit in a position where we have become, to a greater or lesser degree, an agent of the state. The role of the emergency physician is not like running a private practice of dermatology or family practice, that sort of thing. You and I interact with the soft underbelly of the society every moment of the day or night. People are brought into us to be seen with various problems, sometimes against their will. And so the problem I thought we might talk about today is that patient brought into us in custody And now the officers of the law, and officers of the law tend to be very impressive, very large. They sound like walking sheet metal shops. You know, they've got things that dangle and that sort of thing. And they can be very, very imposing and impressive. The question is, what can they ask you to do to a patient? So if they bring someone in, and it's the usual character who we met in our last session, well, if you trust me, I'm going to sue you, that guy. He's now been driving. And by the way, being drunk is no longer a crime in most states. Public intoxication is considered sort of a social disease of some kind. But if you operate a motor vehicle, the law does have pretty good restrictions on that, whether it be a car, an airplane, a boat. We have all those laws in the state of Michigan. And Even I, a snowmobile in Michigan. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and we should in Michigan, let me tell you. Drunk snowmobiling is a serious crime. But I think that every emergency doc is presented with those kinds of people where someone comes in and says, we want the blood, we want this, we want that. And you ought to know what the limits are and what's going on. So let's take a case and just discuss it for a minute. And what I thought I would do, I want to review three important Supreme Court decisions. Yes, I love this. Because if you go to the various state by state, and we're going to review a few of those later as well, but let's go to those that have actually gone to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the first one I'd like to comment on is something called Roken v. California. Before you go there, can you tell us very quickly about the judicial system in the States, for those of us who didn't grow up here. The Supreme Court really is the Supreme Court. It's the, the biggest one, the hairiest, the, it's the gorilla. Big guy. It's the big guy. Yeah. Get any bigger than that? Well, they don't call them the Supremes for nothing. <laughs> and pretty much when we can't decide an issue or an issue, there's a controversy about an issue, or it has 
a large sphere of influence in certain multiple areas in multiple states, it will go through the federal court system. And when it gets to the Supreme Court, that pretty much becomes the law of the land until there's a concept called stare decisis, that which has been decided will be, until we reverse it. The most famous of that was Brown v. Education, the Board of Education, reversed what had been a standard in the country, which was a separate but equal facilities member in education. Well, came the 1950s, and the Brown case turned the country on its ear. I mean, when the Supreme Court speaks, you got to listen. And I think that pretty much across the country, particularly when they come down with criminal decisions, all of us are very familiar with the Miranda decision, that you have to be read your rights. Well, you know, when that came out, that changed behavior of law enforcement agencies across the United States. There's no place now which doesn't read them their rights. In fact, there's no 10-year-old kid who doesn't watch TV who doesn't know that you have the right to remain silent, that sort of thing. Are you familiar yeah. with that in Australia? Do they have anything resembling that there? No. Uh, given it's a country of ex-criminals. Yeah, there's no rights there. We're, we're descendants of the British stock that were too stupid to steal bread that <laughs> in court. <laughs> so the Supreme Court of the United States has actually looked at this issue at least three times. About excreta? Well, no, about taking sample. We'll talk about excreta in just a minute. But one of the things that they've spoken to is in the Roken case, and this is Roken v. California. And it was a very interesting question. What happened was someone in the Los Angeles area was suspected of selling drugs. They broke into this gentleman's house. He and his wife are in bed. He has several capsules on the bedside table. He immediately swallows those capsules, the proposed felon is taken to an emergency department where several policemen say to the emergency doctor, he just swallowed the evidence, we want it. So as part of obtaining that evidence, they did, under force, pass an NG tube to remove this from the stomach. Did they get the stuff out? Yes, they did. And what happened? He was convicted of heroin possession. Wasn't a Viagra overdose? It was not. <laughs> well, we know it wasn't a Viagra overdose because the evidence wouldn't stand up in court. <laughs> oh, that's fair. <laughs> but this went through the appellate system here in California, and there was conflict. So it went right to the Supreme Court of the United States. And here's where the issue really lies. The Supreme Court decides whether things are constitutional or unconstitutional. We have both a Fourth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which the Fourth Amendment speaks to the question of unreasonable search and seizure. How are they willing to search and seize for evidence? The Fourteenth Amendment to the United States speaks to the question of due process. How do we then go about taking property if we need to take property? And the Fifth Amendment speaks to giving testimony against yourself. Does your body fluids, does the output from your stomach or your bladder or your bowel actually give testimony against you? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it can, yes. Quite frequently, actually. Yeah, we're not going to amplify that one. But the Roken case set precedent because what the Supreme Court decided, and this, by the way, was not a unanimous decision, but what they said was, the forcing of a tube down this gentleman's throat offended the sensibilities of the court. Also, there was no court here. There was no judge who had issued a warrant, no due process. 
to receive that to get that. So on several levels, the Roken case said, we have to be careful how we obtain specimens. The next case that speaks to this is a few years later. That was 1952, was the Brethup case. And in Brethup v. Abraham, this had to do with blood being drawn on a defendant, and it was being drawn against his or her will. Now, a fight didn't actually take place, but it was understood by the defendant that they were going to use force if necessary. So it was not just force, it was threat of force that was brought into this question. This was also a split decision. In fact, this was a 5-4 split decision on the U.S. Supreme Court. But they said the taking of blood, and of course they're perfectly well aware of the decision they made in the Roken case in which it offended the sensibilities of the courts. Well, in this case, they said, you know, the taking of blood is a usual and customary medical procedure. And if it is done under medical supervision, then the taking of blood is not an unreasonable invasion of the body. They also spoke to the question of giving testimony against oneself. The Fifth Amendment question was raised. And they said, wait a minute, the Fifth Amendment protects you from having to testify. And they narrowly define testifying as giving something that comes out of your mouth voluntarily against yourself. This was an objective number taken from your blood. So they did not view it as testimony against oneself. The other thing is the 14th Amendment question was raised in this one as well about due process. And yes, there had been a court order issued for the blood. So it started to now define what we were going to do. It had to be usual and customary. There had to be due process of some kind. It has to be scientifically valid. And, of course, part of the argument in that case was, can these things vary? Well, they're close enough for government work that we use blood studies for everything else in medicine. Why wouldn't we use it for this? And the disease entity or the breach of the law that we're concerned about, drunk driving in this case, we need some objective standard in which to make the decision. The last one was Schmerber v. California. And this is another Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment kind of case. And again, in this case, in Schmerber, they did reaffirm the fact that the taking of blood with due process was a clear, usual, and customary medical act and that evidence could be presented in court and it would not be viewed as a violation of the doctor-patient relationship. So I think that all of those are important questions, but I think we need to take each part of that and understand what it is. Now, a lot of states have specifically changed their drunk driving laws so that if you refuse a blood test rather than having a confrontation, the assumption is guilt. So if you will not submit to a blood sample, the presumption of the court is it's positive and you are guilty. So the only thing a blood sample can do is help exonerate you. The refusal is essentially says that you're guilty. And that's because driving is not a right in any state of the United States. It is a privilege extended by the state, licensed by the state. The state can't license a right. A right is a right. They can't interfere with a right. But driving is a privilege. And because what you really do is put everyone else at risk in the society, 
you have to follow certain standards for that privilege to go forward. And that's really what's being done at this point in time. So this presumption of guilt is true in all states? No. It will depend on the state that you're in. The other thing that varies from state to state, and this has not been resolved, believe me, it varies tremendously in the United States, is the question of when the emergency physician is required as opposed to report a blood alcohol level. You realize that we draw blood alcohol levels all the time in altered mental status in patients who have been brought in for this, that, and other thing. Many people are brought in from the scenes of accidents by ambulances. Police aren't even there on the scene. So what should you do with a positive blood alcohol? Now, certain states, state of Hawaii, has gone pretty far into this and basically said, we want you to report positive blood alcohols, and we expect you to draw them on anybody involved in a motor vehicle accident. In other states, you can't report unless it's requested. Now, in all 50 states, if they get a court order, they can get the emergency chart. But the emergency physician has to be very careful that he separates out several concepts here. One of them is he or she is not the police. The police deal with police matters. We deal with medical matters. We can be compelled by court order to cooperate with getting evidence, as the Supreme Court has said. But to initiate the activity, this is where things get very dicey. When do we become part of a Big Brother police operation as opposed to being in what is really the healthcare business. Well, that's a great point because many times you want to cooperate with the police. They help you out. And when patients are getting a little unruly in the department, you don't want to be viewed as some kind of obstructionist kind of thing. So you often see physicians who really just don't know who they're acting on behalf of doing things that the police have requested when, in fact, ought not be doing them. The other thing, Greg, is have you heard anything about the distinction between felonies and mandated blood draws and felonies versus lesser crimes kind of thing? Well, right now, in basically all the states, driving under the influence can be at least made a felony. They can drop it down if they want to for various reasons. So I'm not sure that that's an issue. The bigger questions have to do with possessions of drugs, their small amounts, what happens if you find it. Patients come into us all the time. They undress, they put things on the counter. So now you've got somebody with three joints or four joints that are sitting there. Is there an obligation on the part of the physician to do anything about that sort of thing? And right now, there does not appear to be any obligation to report. The Hawaii case is really the exception. They're pushing toward more and more reporting. Here's where this gets, I think, extremely dicey. If you get health care in Germany, they expect that you have one of two things. You have a citizen identity card, and you would like it, or you have a passport, one of the two things. If you don't have one of those two things, the gendarmes are notified they would like to see you at the end of the visit. Is this where we're moving? I mean, for example, are we going to be reporting those people who do not have proper credentials and identification to the police? Maybe in Minnesota, that's not a big issue. In Southern California or Arizona or New Mexico, that could be a huge question. See, at what point are we an agent, an extension of the police, as opposed to giving out health care 
is there a negative there, which is people will refuse to get health care, knowing that if they come in, they could be reported to the police department. And I think this is the very dicey area right now. Nobody wants people sponging off the health care system. By the same token, is this now going to be an arm of the immigration service? You know, getting back to the blood alcohol thing, if the policeman asks you to draw blood alcohol and the patient says, I don't want you to do that, isn't it pretty clear you ought not do it? Well, it depends which state you're in. If you are in the state of Indiana, the state police in Indiana have been given by state law warrant authority. They can ask you to get it, and it has the same authority as the court. And what if the patient says no? What are you going to do? Are you going to get involved? They'll hold them down and take it. In the state of Michigan... If they come in with a court order, we can do it. And by the way, there are several state court cases, particularly some interesting New Jersey cases and some California cases about the physical taking of blood. And if it is done with a court order, okay, again, due process, usual and customary medical approach, they can go ahead and take that blood from the patient and it will not be considered an assault. So the court's via the court order and the police, are compelling you to do that against the patient's will. So they say, no, no, don't do it to me, doc. The police hold them down, and the cop can look you in the eye and say, if you don't take this blood, doc, you get shot in the back of the head behind the cop Well, I can throw you in jail? What you are is in contempt of court. The court system and the police are separate entities. If the police come in, and of course... Most of us are friends with the police. We want to get along with them. Right. We want to be good guys. Well, it's the gun. <laughs> but what we can't be doing is if there is no due process laid out, we can't just because we're friends of theirs take it and expect to violate the law. Well, it also extends to probably some conversations. If a patient tells you something in confidence with regards to why you're doing your history and physical, that involves the potential crime. There's some issue about whether you can just go tell your friendly cop over there, yeah, he did say he did it kind of thing. Yeah, it all depends. And, and by the way, you have Dr. Bukata has always found the key issue here. It depends on what you're releasing, why you're releasing it, and who you're releasing it to. For example, there is an implied duty to third party, either known or unknown. For example... If in your department there's some guy sitting there pounding his fist and he's been beaten up, and you know who beat him up, right? The Dude Brothers, some dude, and that dude. (laughs) If we actually ever catch the Dude Brothers, all crime in America stops. And what was he doing? Minding his his own own business. Or he's taking his elder grandmother to church. One of those two (laughs) things. But occasionally you will have somebody who says, what happened? Jimmy Jones beat me up and I'm going to kill him when I get out of here. Note on your chart, threats made against Jimmy Jones and notify the authorities because you now have reason to believe that a known third party has been threatened and that is your obligation to notify. You know, you and I are sitting here right now in California, which is the home of that case. And that's the famous Tarasov case. Yeah, we talked about it on yeah. the first or second tape. Exactly. And the Tarasov case can be extended. That actually happened to do with a psychiatrist at UCLA. But you can extend that to the emergency department that if you have knowledge, and here's the best way to think about it, the third party down the line, if you can reasonably prevent harm through notification, why not? 
that's what the entire theory is when we treat people with gonorrhea. Mm -hmm. We have said that the benefit to the state and to other individuals outweighs the doctor-patient confidentiality. We say that all the time. For example, in the state of California, if you've had a seizure, you can notify. In fact, I think you must You're Required to. Required to. Why? Because we've now said that the doctor-patient relationship is secondary to the protection of the general public and the state. You see, no other physician in our society interacts with the state at the same level that emergency docs do. I mean, when's the last time a dermatologist ever had to report somebody for anything? A shanker. A shanker, yeah. (laughs) Well, but they would have to report. They would have an obligation under the laws of the state of California to make that kind of report. So I want to summarize this from a practical point of view. So there are different laws in different states, so you have to know you're a specific law. There are some states like Hawaii where if you draw the blood alcohol level because you think it was indicated medically, I can't imagine why, and it was positive, and there was some car accident, I assume it's written some way like that, then you have a duty to report that blood alcohol to the police. That brings up, if that's true, and tell me yes enough, that's true. That's a fair summary of them. What about the whole idea of the chain of evidence? Can't that always be thrown out of court because they say, well, you just did your routine thing in hospitals. Everybody knows things get mixed up in hospitals. Well, Where was the good <laughs> chain of evidence there? Just understand that each one of these will be decided on a case-by-case basis. They will bring people in and say, who drew that blood? It went to the lab. Who labeled the specimen? If they can make a reasonable argument, understand the prejudice of the legal system is to get people who drink and drive off the road. The other thing is updating and the sophistication of our laboratory data. Pretty much what the lab produces is viewed as reasonably reliable, particularly if it fit with the history and the clinical examination and everything else. You know what? Most states, that would be allowed. Well, we've gotten off the track here just a bit because we have to make a distinction here between a blood alcohol done for medical reasons, which is probably a mistake in the vast majority of the time when it is done, or certainly not necessary, versus the police officer saying, I want you to draw blood alcohol on this person because he's involved in a traffic accident. I want to know the number. When they do that, this chain of custody thing is very strict at the hospitals, right. and, and it's given to them, and they put it in a bag. They even take it to their own lab. When we're doing it for medical reasons, we follow the usual procedures for drawing blood and labeling it in the hospital. And by the way, the police always want you to tell them things which you really can't. That's what I was getting at before. When a patient tells you something in confidence in terms of the history, physical, etc., etc., that doesn't involve potential danger to a third party where you're basically giving evidence to the police in the prosecution of this person. I couldn't agree with you more that that's why you have to use some judgment here. If you can defend the fact that you are protecting society at large or a known individual threats have been made, the usual sorts of things, or if you've seen his gonorrhea or his positive AIDS test, and there's family, there's wife, things like that, the laws really look at that quite differently than if they gave you information like, I was robbing a candy store when I accidentally shot myself in the foot. Exactly, and then you take it on yourself to, well, without the gunshot wound, perhaps they just came in because they twisted their ankle. And you found that out. You can't be calling the police up and said, there's a guy here said he just robbed a candy store. No, no, that's exactly right. You cannot be doing that. And so I think we need to separate those issues out very, very clearly that you're not another arm of the police. What if he said, while I was robbing the candy store, I shot the owner in the back of the head, don't tell anybody? 
does that become a purely ethical problem, or is there some law that says under circumstances where there is a murder well, the reason, I, the reason I mentioned this stuff about the gunshot wounds is because you're supposed to report gunshot wounds to the authorities. So that right. kind of muddies the water here. Well, it's, it's more than just gunshot wounds in the state of Michigan. It's crimes of violence. That means if it was a stabbing, a shooting, if they beat him up with a club. So, again, in some states, you are required to say that there was a stabbing, there was a shooting. Yes, so, under those specific circumstances, you are required. Absolutely. And, again, we will, I'm sure, debate this in one of the sessions about wife abuse, spousal reporting. reporting, how controversial that really is. And people argue about this all the time. But there is no question that I, I believe, and I'd have to be corrected on this one, I haven't checked every state, but I think every state has some sort of Crimes of Violence Reporting Act, just like they have a Sexually Transmitted Disease Act, like they have an act for child abuse. Child abuse. Child abuse. By the way, it's not child abuse, it's reasonable suspicion of child abuse. And most states have a companion piece to those bills which say, if you did reporting in good faith... You cannot be civilly sued for your action. So I think we've distilled it down to if it's a medical blood alcohol, they can subpoena the record and get that. They can. Number one. I want you to draw blood alcohol on this person. And this person says, no, I don't want it. Then you really can't draw it because you haven't given the other things that you mentioned, Greg, like, well, there's a court order to do it. and, And that's it. Uh, yes, or, or police in certain states are empowered to enact it as if they're a court Yes, order. they act under a warrant authority, but those are only a few states which have given their state police yeah, that, I don't think that that's authority. here in California. So right. if a patient says, I don't want you to do it, doc, and a cop says, I want you to do it, I don't think you can do it. Right. If they did put a, an ER doc, and there were, in fact, there was a picture of this doctor in a cop car when he refused to do that. But I don't think that ultimately the state prevailed. How many states have that? I mean, it seems like this, if you refuse, your guilty thing just gets everybody off the hook. And so the cops want them to refuse because, okay, we're done, you're guilty. Well, How many states is that in? Is that in lots of states? I can't tell you how many. It's in the teens at least. Mm. It's become vogue now because what they'd like to do is get out of the business of having to take the blood in anything but a voluntary manner. By the way, there is another question on the table here, and that is force or threat of force. We talked about that. You're not allowed to threaten it either if they say, well, you're going to give it, right? And then they say, we will beat you up or we will hold you down. That is threat of force. Now, if the patient says nothing or then has he given consent? Implied. Well, it's a very interesting question. This goes back to a case which was decided in the 1930s called O'Brien versus Cunard Lines. And this had to do with the giving on board a ship. The, the Cunard Steamship Company was giving yellow fever vaccination. And a guy got in line with everybody else to get his shot. Well, after he got his shot, he keeled over and hit his head and a bunch of other things. He went and sued the steamship company and said, you didn't have my consent. And the judge looked at this and said, wait a minute. You got in line with everybody else who was rolling up your sleeve. What did you think they were going to do when you stuck your arm up there? So in that case, the maximum of the law is very clear here that the silence gave consent in that issue. And it's very poor defense for a guy to say, well, I couldn't 
understand the question being asked. I was too drunk at the time. I mean, that's not a good defense for him at that moment in time. What about the unconscious patient? Head injury. Well, you've asked a very interesting question, and there's a whole series of these. Most every state has one of those. That has to do with the fact that if a patient is comatose, and as part of your reasonable medical workup of that patient, you would obtain a drug screen and alcohol, you have implied consent at that moment in time. That's part of the reasonable man doctrine. The reasonable man would want to be treated, would want to have his health care professionals understand what's going on. You have a perfect right to take that blood at that moment in time. The tougher question is, then the next day or whatever it is, the police want to subpoena that record. The court will have to get involved in that question about getting the record. But you taking a blood alcohol is no different than you taking their hemoglobin, their potassium, anything else, if it was taken as part of the medical workup. Yes, but what happens if the person's comatose, you weren't going to get that blood alcohol, and the cop says, I I want a blood alcohol. I I think that that's on a state-by-state basis, and it's more complex, and it has to do with the laws in that particular state. If, for example, the police say, by the way, I'm calling up and getting a court order for it, then you would obtain that blood. But at the time, we're talking about what would an emergency department physician be expected to know. I would think that you would probably say, well, you know, a guy's unconscious, the cop wants the blood, I'm going to get the blood, and if they find out that this is not, according to the rules of the state, legit, they can just throw out that evidence. They can toss it out. Yeah. You want to tell us about urine? Want to, uh, mo- urine, want to move down? The- yeah, let's, we might as well move on the food chain here. Yes. Urine really has to do you, with... you own your urine or you're just taking care of it? <laughs> <laughs> you learned from the last uh, session, yeah, Ricky. Right. We, we like that. You don't own your children. But do you own your own wee-wee? You have temporary custody of your wee-wee. <laughs> I think I have custody But right you now don't own it. <laughs> custody of that I'm going to donate it. This is extension of certain federal court decisions which have to do with RICO. And can the police search your trash? And the answer is, yes, they can. If you've put it out into the public stream, no pun intended here, <laughs> if you put it into the public stream, then it is free game. You're done with it? Which means once they pee it out... They can have it. Where this actually gets played out is in Miami when you have mules bringing in packets of cocaine in their bowels. You know, when a poor farmer from Peru has made 12 trips to Miami that year and they x-ray them and they see packets in there, they can sit them in a room and give them go lightly. And as soon as they, quote unquote, crap those bags out, the police can have those because the usual and customary person does not save and keep their feces. The only person I know who used to do that was Howard Hughes, I believe. But once it's out of your body, they can have it. And you can't stop that. They have a right to that at that point. So what is the deal with wee-wee? My usual and customary practice is not to pee into a bottle and leave it on the table. It's too... Do it in the bathroom. Well, but remember that the courts were offended. Their sensibilities were offended by the taking of passing of an NG tube in the Roken matter, in the Roken case. I don't think, and I've never seen that, where anybody has forced an emergency doc to put in a Foley catheter to take urine. I think that the Supreme Court, I think the Roken decision in the Supreme Court would probably still prevail on that one. But again, Roken was 50 years ago. And whether that would still prevail or not, I don't know. So we have covered all the excreta and effolia. What about your hair? Hair clippings? <laughs> we can do the hair clippings. Well, I still had, I had one question about what about the person who's running away from the cops and they've got 
I guess you've kind of answered it. If they jam the cocaine up their butt or they swallow it, then basically at the moment that they expel that, then it's evidence. But let's say the guy's in the emergency department and he's swallowed a whole handful of stuff. There's no reason to keep him medically anymore or he wants to leave against medical advice. I guess at that point he would be under the custody of the police at that point. They'll take him away and he'll go and puke it up or... Can they keep them in your emergency department and say, we're keeping him here until he poops or he vomits? I have no experience with that. under arrest, they probably could. Yeah, they probably could, but pretty much they take him back to the jail. I did have a case where a young man, when the police entered, started swallowing rocks of cocaine at a furious rate. By the time they got him to see me, he had a heart rate of about 190. His blood pressure was going crazy, and I suggested to him that there could be bad consequences here. I said, I want to remove that with a tube. And it was only about 20 minutes after he ingested it. I thought it was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. We did remove it. The police took it. And by the way, while this was going on, he felt really bad. The police are interviewing him, and he admits to who his supplier was. So this goes to court, and he wants to recant his testimony. And the judge said, what did Dr. Henry tell you? And he said, well, he said, I could die with this. The judge asked him a straightforward question. Did you believe you could die at that moment in time? He said, yes. That's why I got the stuff out. The judge declared a dying declaration, would not let him recant this. Now he is going to die of acute lead poisoning (laughs) as soon as his contact finds him and shoots him. But each of these, there is some variation from state to state about what they will let happen. Well, I think one of the underlying themes of this is just because a policeman asks you to, what did he tell you, Doc? and we want you to draw blood alcohol, Doc, doesn't mean just because they got the badge on that you can or should do that. Because I think this principle that you are not an agent of the police and actually that you're acting on behalf of these patients, even if they're in custody, needs to be considered as prevailing. Well, you are an agent of the state for limited purposes that are clearly defined in law. And to have them go marching through this casually, they can't do that. And so if they want to tell you about their appendix, about this or that, really, that's their private business. That is the relationship between the doctor and the patient. Understand that that's not always the case. If you're dealing with workman's comp cases, part of workman's comp laws in most states say that the medical chart generated, copy goes to the employer. And so if they're carrying on conversation and adding things to this or you're taking other information, they should understand that that is not a strictly limited document. In most states, the Workmen's Compensation Act, in an attempt to settle these things rapidly and make sure people are covered with care, basically said the person paying the bill gets to look at the chart. And so what's going on and what's on that piece of paper will go to the employer And the emergency doc should recognize that there is potential consequences here. Yeah, I was blowing dope at work, or I was doing this or that. That stuff, if it's written on the chart, will go to the employer. So the workman's compensation cases, work injury cases, are really handled in a different legal manner than standard cases. Can I take a step back then again? So I understand where we've come from, that we're not employed by the state to be law enforcement officials, but... Is it true that I pretty much have to do whatever the hell I'm told if a cop comes in with a court order and it says, Mel, 
chop this guy's left leg off I mean, within reason. Right. Within the usual and customary gathering of materials, yes, or you will face being in contempt of the court that issued the warrant. So what do these physically look like? I've actually never had a court order handed to me by a policeman. What are they? Well, I don't think it really happens because the fact of the matter is is usually these people are pulled from traffic accidents or some kind of assaults. They're brought into the ER to do something else we'll talk about called medical clearance and okay to book, which is a really a wonderful kind of concept. <laughs> I've never seen that happen in my own personal experience that they can, they're just basically wanting to blood alcohol to help make the case against this guy who was involved in this traffic accident. And I think that we need to be clear on where our obligations lie. But I could see, a, I don't know if this ever happens, but theoretically, let's say there's some homicide and the guy who's killed shoots back. There's a bullet stuck in the guy that you're looking after, and the cop's saying, take that bullet out. I need it for ballistics. What they can say to you is they can't ask you to do something which is not medically reasonable at the moment. What they can say is if you're going to the operating room on that, there's a felony involved here. We want the foreign body when it's removed. So my question about if they had a court order that said take out the bullet, then you would have to take the bullet out, but that never happens. That essentially never happens. The other thing is, if they had a court order that said, stick a tube down this guy's nose and get samples out of the stomach, they can't actually do that. The Roken case has not been reversed. A local court can't ask you to do something, which the Supreme Court of the United States says is unconstitutional. I think we got this down to the best of our ability now. Yeah. It seems to be that there's a lot of local law. This has been an overview of sort of federal law and the Supreme Court, but you're still going to have to know a little bit about your local, uh, your state laws. It's not a little bit. It's mandatory. I think that every emergency department needs a book, and there are at least two dozen statutes, which you ought to have in that book. And they have to do with child abuse, elderly abuse, the taking of samples, whatever the state law is, so that you can go right to it. And part of the job of hospital counsel is to let you know what's currently happening in the state law. Reporting laws are an important part of what you and I do because whether we like it or not, there are broader consequences to people's health. For example, the patient that you had come in who had immunosuppressed disease, coughing, maybe they have tuberculosis. You know, if we diagnose their tuberculosis, we do have a right to have them incarcerated and treated till their condition is under control. Well, actually, that's really interesting because that came up with this case that we talked about with somebody. Last month? Was uh, it last month? Last month. And it came up clinically. If somebody's got active tuberculosis and they are hacking up AFB, they're red snappers, and I report it, but do I physically stand or get the police in my emergency department to stand in front of that patient and stop them leaving the emergency department? Knowing they're homeless, tracking them will be very difficult. Which infectious diseases, because we've talked about if they say I'm going to shoot somebody, okay, we stop them. But if they've got an infectious disease, which we could reasonably expect might kill a lot of people if he goes coughs on the local school children, what's my legal responsibility for those people? After all, it's not just for that person, it's for the rest of society. And the society can... A court can sentence that person to be put in a hospital against their will until they no longer constitute a danger to the wider society. And so at that moment in time, that person is a walking time bomb. You can't think about just that person. You've got to think about the hundreds that they might also infect and might spread to a lot of other people. That's the exact same reason we can compel people to be treated for gonorrhea. 
and that's why there's a reporting law about that sort of thing. At that moment in time, calling the police about talking to this person about the fact we can get the court order is a reasonable thing to do. So I may not necessarily physically stand in front of the patient and hold them down, but I, I might call the police very quickly and say, they're leaving, you know hurry, come and get them. I'm almost never in favor of us having physical confrontations with patients. I mean, obviously we have patients who are deranged or so badly intoxicated and that sort of thing. If you're going to do something like that, never threaten it and never halfway do it and never do it by yourself because the last thing you ever want is a fair fight. You want 10 people, get them down if you're going to do it. Most of these cases, I think, I don't want to fight with a patient, but I will get the authorities involved because we actually pay people, you know, the, the police, to carry on that kind of stuff. The other thing is that the more we do that sort of thing, the more it interferes with the question of what our role is. We're healthcare advisors, and when you start wandering into other areas, it's very dangerous. Well, one of the things we said we were going to do each month was give you a little bit of what's in the literature. There is an extraordinarily great article written by Markit Gupta entitled The Mandatory Reporting Laws in the Emergency Physician. This was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine March 2007, and it is a terrific, terrific paper. It has a wonderful chart here that goes through about 10 things like child abuse, injuries from weapons, and those kinds of things, indicating as of 2006, which states require which. And it's really fascinating because in California, just going across this chart, you have to report everything, child abuse, elder abuse, injuries from weapons, injuries from crimes, domestic violence, and driving impairment, and legal immunity from... That means you do have legal immunity if you report. They cannot sue a doctor for reporting those things. By the way, in California, you also have to swear allegiance to a food group to, now, to live here. So basically, we're a very liberal state. They want you to report everything kind of thing. In Alabama, you don't have to report injuries from weapons, injuries from crimes, domestic violence, driving impairment, or alcohol-impaired motor vehicle crashes. I'm wow. moving to Alabama. You yeah. don't have to do anything in well, Alabama I, except <laughs> not marry your sister. Well, even then. <laughs> and I don't even think that's a crime. That's not on the chart. That's right. Right. Exactly. Right. 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 What's that reference? We'll obviously put it in the written summary, but just give this us This is uh, terrific. This is Alice Emergency Medicine, March 2007. Malkeep Gupta from the University of California, Los Angeles. All of you. Oh, all of you. Come on. All of you medical residency program, Los Angeles. You know Malkit Gupta? No, I don't know. Well, kudos to to Dr. Gupta. That's a useful Mm. publication. How did that happen? Because we mentioned a month or so ago that what you said, there ought to be a – this goes through every state. Now, this is a lot better than starting with a blank piece of paper. Right. Well, what do they require in our state? Actually, in many states, Michigan being one of them, there's a booklet that has health care laws as a booklet. And it is put together, it's distilled the law down on those areas. And I think that that sort of thing should be in every emergency department. Because here's what you can't do, is every time someone comes in, be trying to invent or debate what the law is. You've got to have a sort of a rhythm to this. Mm -hmm. This is what we're going to do. This is what we want to do, yada, yada, so that you're not living in a quandary in doubt every time someone comes in. You personally can't have the doubt because it'll create such internal anxiety into your head will blow off. Your nursing staff, the other people working with you can't have that doubt. So you have to really preempt this and say, 
a little CME here. Everybody understand this, particularly if you've had some issues in the past. Because right. the last thing you want is you're full of confidence about what you want to do. Nobody else in the department is going to follow you. If yeah. anything, I would think the nursing staff would probably be more sympathetic to the requests of the police, not knowing this line that's drawn right. between your relationship with the patient and theirs. Yeah. The other thing is everyone's personality comes to bear in these things. Your view of the abuse of women in a marital relationship, your view of what child abuse is, all these other sorts of things. And so there is some variability here. That's why the states have pretty much exempted you from suit if you, in good faith, and here's the phrase, in good faith. We had a Michigan case, which was very famous. child had been reported six or eight times for child abuse, eventually found that they had osteogenesis imperfecta. And so the family is outraged, and they want to sue all these docs and these, the university and all that other kind of stuff. And uh, basically the court threw that out and said, if we allow that to be filed, we've sent a message that says not to report unless you're sure. What we want is broad reporting and then let us sort it out at the administrative level. And I think that's the way it ought to be. Excellent. While we're on this topic of blood alcohols then, or going back to the topic of blood alcohols then, and Rick, you said that you think getting a blood alcohol level is wrong most of the time. Can you state why you believe that? Well, I guess the idea is not necessarily wrong, but it's not medically useful, and if anything, is dangerous. Because if you have this person who comes in and they were intoxicated, but they were also in a car accident or something like that, or an artistic kind of thing, and they're a little somnolent, and you're wondering, ah, maybe it's, you're just drunk kind of thing, you measure blood alcohol, sure enough, it's 300. Well, that would certainly account for this kind of thing. But you've done an exam and noticed that there's a little hematoma in the scalp there kind of thing. Some people are under this idea that, well, we'll just wait for them to wake up in an hour and two hours and three hours later, not any more awake. If anything, they may be less awake. The issue is you deferred doing that CAT scan, which should have been done because they were obtunded and you had a head injury right at the get-go, and you delayed doing that because you thought that you gave the primacy here to the blood alcohol, which is, I don't think, the thing to do. I want to show my age, and that is I grew up in the age of history and physical examination. The worst thing you can do is prevent you from doing the reasonable examination that you would have done when you write them off as saying, well, just drunk. drunk." That phrase, just drunk, is very dangerous. Yeah, it's on the tombstone of a lot of emergency docs, medically, legally. The last thing you want to do is just say, oh, they're just drunk. That's why one arm doesn't move. That's why one pupil is funny. You know what? Alcohol doesn't do that. I think the great pit you can fall into, and that is, let's say you send off the blood alcohol, and it's in the normal range, below what we consider to be intoxicated, and yet your physical exam says the patient isn't right. So what do you believe? When in doubt, you believe your exam, not a laboratory study. By the way, did you also do a blood percodan level? Did you do a blood valium level? Somebody who's drinking wouldn't also take drugs, would they? Well, they wouldn't do anything like that. So when you send off an isolated chemical. Remember the other half a million chemicals in the world that could have polluted their brain and don't believe because the blood alcohol level is at a certain level that they are able to take care of themselves, drive themselves home, do all those other sorts of things. It is a trap. And that is when you start saying that because of a negative blood alcohol, they don't have something wrong with them. That's wrong. And the other thing I think is important is many times people draw blood alcohols get a high number, 
And down the road, they decide the patient can go home with his brother, with his so-and-so, that kind of thing. Once you measure a blood alcohol, the metabolism of alcohol is pretty much straight line. If they know what it is at hour X, somebody will be able to extrapolate that at hour Y, it was probably this. I don't want anybody to use a blood alcohol against me when I say, I think this person is clinically capable of going home with his brother because the speech is cleared. He's a little bit ataxic, but minimally so. His brother said he's going to help him up the steps and watch him during the night, that kind of thing. Some people feel that the blood alcohol, which is now 300, has to be under 100 before they can go home. I think that that is a trap. I think that this is a clinical decision when people can be discharged, not a, well, the number was still in the intoxicated range, doctor, and now look what happened. Well, wait a second. Whenever they say, well, it was in the intoxicated range, doctor. Legally. No, it's not. Legally to operate a motor vehicle. Yes, and I I was going to make that point. And so if you're sending them out to drive, that's a problem. But if they're going home with somebody and they're reasonable, you know, come 10, 11 o'clock tonight, I'm going to be in no shape. I understand that. (laughs) And that one of you is going to have to help me up the stairs. But I don't think it's important that you measure my blood alcohol at that moment in time. It's that you look at the physical examination and decide whether this person is reasonably capable, if they're not driving, of being taken home. We send these people home all the time. God help us the day that we have to keep everybody around till they're sober. You've got to remember the big problem is some of these people, when they get below 0.1, they get very shaky. Well, well that's what we do at county all the time, and Mike Erdang is here can attest to this. We have to find that very small window between when their blood alcohol is 500 and they can't walk to when it gets down to 300 and they start to withdraw. We've got to get it just right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. (laughs) And one allied situation. So mom brings in little junior. Little junior has a cut, a fever, some other problem, and it's clear that mother is intoxicated. She's not the patient, but the child is the patient here, and mom's intoxicated. Mom, how'd you get here? Well, I drove here. And her speech is slurred, and in your professional opinion, this lady is under the influence of alcohol or some other substance that has caused a similar kind of incapacitation. I've had this situation a couple of times. I am at that moment in time, as we pointed out, I am the protector of that child. If I wouldn't let my child drive with her, I'm not going to let your child drive with her. And what I usually do is, being a non-confrontational, warm, fuzzy type, I tend to, A... I'm all heart. (laughs) That's that thing right behind my shoulder holster. And what I tend to do is I will ask security to sit with mom, get her a cup of coffee, say, look, mom, they don't let me. We use the great they. They don't let me let this child go home with you until I think you're doing all right. I'll have the police stop by. We do have a great relationship with the police. I have police who will come over and say, mom, give me your keys. Or we'll sit outside and watch until as soon as you turn that car over we'll arrest you and you know what i'll be back in three hours and give you your keys back but what you don't want to do is it's not just the law it's your own conscience what would you think if on the way home mom's in an accident and you had the ability to prevent that you have an obligation to that kid that you're sewing up to take reasonable care of them and that's part of the care what about if they're just English and they drive on the wrong side of the road and you know, just, they're here in America? Maybe well, they should be locked down. They probably deserve <laughs> it. A few things then. So you told me that a blood alcohol level is not as good an imaging study as a CT scan. Is that what you're saying? 
I think it's problematic <laughs> to say, well, the reason this person is down who's had a head injury is because they get a 300 blood alcohol. That is a mistake. And the other thing you said, and I want to put a number to it because I think sometimes it's a useful number, is that in general, you, me, even Greg, the alcoholic that he is, and the really good alcoholics that we have at USC all tend to metabolize alcohol at around 20 to 25 milligrams per hour. So if you have somebody who's 500, you can predict when they're going to get down from there. You can't, as we said, predict when they're going to be clinically good enough to walk or anything. That's totally different. But you can tell when they're going to get to zero. What about this idea that writing on charts, it's the same kind of concept, smells of alcohol? That's even less specific, isn't it? It's less specific, but it is an appropriate medical finding. If you want to write odor of alcohol on breath, that has nothing to do with how they're functioning. It's what you found. What you don't want to write on a chart is stinking drunk, because that's a pejorative. You see, now you've made a moral suasion kind of decision about them as a person. Now you're in the job of judgment, not in the job of medical care. Medical care is your job. Judgment belongs to the Lord. I think you can use other phrases to make it paint the picture of somebody who's impaired. Right. You know, their, their speech is slurred. They walk with a broad-based gait with some ataxia. Those kinds of things are professional ways of describing somebody who is staking drunk. Exactly. And I think odor of ETOH is a perfectly valid finding because you know what? We've all smelled it in our career. Well, some people make this statement, I think they're just trying to tick me off, is that alcohol doesn't have an odor. It's the carrier that has the odor. So it's not the odor of alcohol, it's the odor of the alcohol carrier. But on a chart, most people know beverage. what you mean. Yes, exactly right. You're right. And if they come in and they're bombed on vodka, you probably won't pick it up, at least with the olfactory sense. But, you know, the rest of the physical exam, the nystagmus, abnormal finger-to-nose testing, all that sort of stuff... You know what? You'll pick it up. Now, here's where some people have told me and do it themselves, use a blood alcohol clinically. They say, we have these patients, usually in inner city, large urban emergency departments like I work in, that come in every other night intoxicated. And we can't really assess them very well. There are some people who scan them. And we literally have people in our department who have had 50 or more CT scans in a six-month period just because they come in. No problem. They're going to die of cancer in about 10 years. (laughs) Now, they say, rather than doing that, what I do is I do a blood alcohol level and I see how high it is and then I get an idea of when they should be sobering up and then I watch them for a while and I check them again. And then I send them home because that's what I'm using the alcohol level at that point is to decide, yeah, they're probably just drunk again. If they look really wasted and the blood alcohol comes back at 200, and I know Mr. Bobby here, Mr. Bobby here is every night and he's usually at a blood alcohol of 500, then that would cause me to do the CT scan early. But if it's 600, I know he's just drunk again. Well, is you know, that a reasonable thing I think to do? Well, going to be rather than scan them every time? Well, you don't have to scan everybody every time, but if, let's take the isolated incident. If the physical exam would tell you that I have reasonable concern about intracranial injury, I don't care whether it's first trip in, hundredth trip in, I'm going to do my usual and customary workup. And I think that one could make the argument that that person is getting prejudicial medical care. Well, I don't want to irradiate them. I mean, I can tell you what my practice has been. In the past, I used to watch them, stick them in the corner. But after having a number of patients in the recent past not wake up in the morning because of the large subdural that I'd sat on all night. Yes. Now I'm like, you know what the hell is it? I have to scan you if you're really that intoxicated. Yeah. I'll try and get away with it when I can, but if you're yeah. really 
out of it, I can't assess you. My at all. view basically was community physician who's not working in a hospital that's just such yeah. off the bell shaped curve as yours. Yes, it's hard to relate what's happening at a nice small community hospital and what happens in some of our inner cities. It really is a different form of healthcare. Right, and it, we should talk about it though because a lot of the care is given in large inner city emergency departments. There's millions of patients that go through there, so we do recognise it is two different forms of medical care, though. Exactly. Well, I'd like to do a summary of what we've talked about so far. It was a nice discussion. We went over lots of things. We really focused on the drawing of blood, of alcohol levels, of urine and stool. That's really what this thing was about. When is it okay for us to do that stuff and give it to the police versus when it isn't? And the general concepts, I think, came out this way. There's two reasons to do tests. There's two reasons to hold people down. The reasons to do tests are medical. I really need this because it'll change my management. And legal. I need this information to prosecute somebody who did something naughty. I hold people down medically because I'm worried about them. Because if they leave, they might go and hurt themselves. Because if they leave, they're confused, they could hurt themselves. So I will hold them against their will for medical reasons until their sensorium is cleared. I may also hold people for legal reasons. Now, we don't usually ever do that. That's usually what the police do. So they hold them and then we give them medical care. Now, when it came to whether you can take substances from the persons, it seems to go two ways. There are those substances which flow out of us naturally. It's easy for us to get them. We don't have to assault the patient. Maybe that's the wrong word. We don't have to do anything invasive to the patient to get that material. So if they vomit, we could collect the vomit. If they urinate, we could take the urine away. If they poop something out, we could take it away. All of these things in a court of law would be considered okay because we really didn't have to be invasive to get it from the patient. It is usual and customary for them to poop and pee, and we just collected the sample, and then the police can do with it what they will. The real big one was about the taking of blood for especially blood alcohol levels. Now, it turns out that it's different from state to state. In some states, if the person refuses, then they're considered guilty, you're done. In some states, if they refuse, the police have a standing mandate that says they have court authority to tell you, as the doctor, as the nurse, to get that blood. They may hold them down for you, and then you can take the blood, and then it'll go through a chain of evidence. There are some states where they have to go and physically get a court order by telephone or however, and then they'll tell you, waving the little flag, that you have to do this. If you decide you're not going to do it, then guess what? You are in contempt of court, and there can be some big problems as a result of that. There's lots of ethics, obviously, that goes with all of these things. I think, in general, most of us would agree that for this kind of thing, in order to help prosecute people who are drunk driving on the road and running over school children, that we want to be involved as healthcare practitioners in part of that. Clearly, this could get out of control, and there have been societies in the past that have used physicians and nurses and healthcare professionals to do things that are very, very unethical, from a society-wide point of view. We are certainly not there. We should certainly watch out for it. I think the taking of blood alcohols would be okay under most circumstances because we would consider it a good thing for a society to not have drunk people on the road. Now, the next section that was in there was very important to me, and it was Rick and Greg talking about the fact that, from a medical point of view, how often does the drawing of blood alcohol really matter? Should we really do it? Should it stop us doing CT scans? Should it make us do CT scans? The answer was... 
In a very, very small minority of patients, can you think of circumstances where getting a blood alcohol level really should change your management? Because it's only one of the sedative hypnotics. If you're using it to decide yes, no CT scan, you're going to get into trouble a lot of the time. And that certainly is borne out in sort of the medical defense literature, that not doing CT scans on drunk people because they are simply drunk is bad because a lot of these people also have subdurals. So before you get a blood alcohol level for a medical reason, you should do what you do with any other test. Is this really going to change my management? And should it change my management or should I just forget it and do some other thing, for example, like a CT scan? Now, Greg Henry also brought up another very important point. Be careful how you chart that your patient is intoxicated. Do not write down these pejorative terms that the patient's sloppy drunk and uh, they're mean and nasty. What you should write down is that the patient smells of ETOH or ETOH carrier, that they're ataxic, they're slurring their words and unable to walk without assistance. That produces a nice clear picture of what's going on without getting into the very murky, very ugly medico-legal problems of calling people bad names in the emergency department. You know, it's been said before, and it's absolutely true, in the emergency department, you have to carry many hats. You have to be part doctor, part lawyer, part spiritual advisor. And this series is really helping me to understand where the Venn diagram of me being a doctor versus me being a lawyer overlaps when I'm doing something medically and when I'm doing something legally. And if nothing else, that has been extremely helpful for me in the last 60 minutes. I think I'm starting to understand this when it comes to the taking of blood urine, stool, and other things from patients for both medical and legal reasons. Well, we've got Sandy Mahan on the phone. Sandy is the uh, Director of Risk Management for Beta Healthcare Group uh, here in California. I think, Sandy, your, your company is, is the largest insurer of emergency physicians in California, I believe. Well, we insure about 2,500 physicians, emergency physicians between the Beta Healthcare Group hospital members as well as HealthPro our uh, physician group. Well, like the hair club for men, I'm also a client of Beta Healthcare, and I must you admit, are. well, I say, yes, I am, absolutely. You are a good yes. client. Uh, Sandy, you have my uh, deep sympathy there. This is Greg. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, Mel's on the line as well. Sandy, you're in a unique position to talk to our subscribers about what an insurance company is having to deal with in the in the world of emergency medicine, and uh, we would be very interested in your insights. Well, kind of go back to basics because you know, in the world of emergency medicine, some of the basic risk management tenants hold provided the physician is using them or remembers to use them. And that's, that's the thing that we find really troubling is that you, we continue to see problems with claims that have already been addressed as far as say, the quality of the workup, return visits, callback programs. Some of these basic risk management programs that were designed to prevent claims have kind of fallen by the wayside. What we're seeing in claims in California is frequency is flat for the most part, but severity is continuing to trend up and trend up into huge numbers. When I say huge numbers, on average, the brain damage patient, be it infant, adolescent, or adult, a life care plan is about $6 million, present value, meaning today's dollars. And they always include 24-hour home care assistance and you know all kinds of probably extravagant care. With these high damage awards and settlements, we really question, are the insurance limits that physicians are currently carrying in California adequate? The, you know, the concept of professional liability is to protect your personal assets, 
And for the most part, when a physician consents to settle, they are no longer responsible for any damages. However, we've had some pretty dramatic cases of this last year out in California where the damages have exceeded, well, $96 million is the highest to date. Those are high numbers and the entire issue of are your insurance limits adequate, I think it really needs to be evaluated. We see some movement in the hospitals as far as medical staff bylaw requirements for hospital-based physicians to be increased from one and three to two and four, three and um, five, and these are all million dollars. So I think that every physician needs to kind of do his homework and just say, am I adequately covered for what these high severity damage cases are going for? And, and like I said, in California, the average brain damaged uh, person is about $6 million present value. So what we're seeing in claims, unfortunately, really hasn't changed as far as failure to diagnose and failure to treat being the top one, one and two, and they're about 50-50 each. And what we would call the big five, abdominal pain, head pain, chest pain, fevers in children and fractures. None of this has changed for the most part in the last 20 years. What we have seen tick up, and we've spent about $10 million on this claim to date just this last year, is failure to diagnose and appropriately treat infections and sepsis, be it brain abscess, spinal abscess, meningitis in children. And so we've encouraged the physicians to look at the sepsis bundle, adopt it, use as appropriate an evaluation of the patients and determine whether or not to, to start it for admission. But we've had some pushback from some of the physicians saying, you know, a bundle, a protocol, all it is is another cookbook, and that's really ivory tower medicine. And so we have the kind of movers and shakers in the EDs, and they don't always ascribe to the ivory tower opinion of medicine. But we know that practice guidelines keep physicians out of trouble, and they are clear. Hopefully, they're being used, be it for AMI, fever, children, et cetera. That's why I was interested in your last CD on the management of stroke. We're not having a problem with uh, TPA or failing to administer TPA because the standard of care is still so soft and plaintiff attorneys don't like to waste their time on cases that aren't clear cut. But the other problem with the plaintiff attorneys is that they use ivory tower physicians to serve as expert witness. And so these practice guidelines come back into play whether emergency physician is using them or is cognizant of them in the first place. So it's kind of where we're seeing claims, high value claims continuing to trend up, frequency flat, failure to diagnose, failure to treat being the most common cause of the claim in the ED. Sandy, one of the things that you had mentioned uh, when we had talked previously I think it's really an important issue is physicians not having enough time to see patients and being expected to still not miss anything, do a good job, make the patients think you care and, and like you. And as emergency departments deal more and more with this issue of quote unquote overcrowding, it just seems like it's a setup for mistakes to occur, patients to be angry, and lawsuits to be generated. And it's going to get worse. You know, with the boomers, the increased usage of the EDs are going to go up. You know, volumes are going to go up. You're going to have older, sicker patients. Nothing's going to change other than everybody's older and crankier. But the quality of the workup is incredibly important. 
as well as what the medical record reflects as far as the quality of the workup. And this is just another common, common problem with claims in that if you have a checkbox system where the physician can just check or abbreviates WNL or, you know, NAD, it gives the appearance that the person was short on time trying to get, you know, a lot of stuff covered at once. However, when you're looking at that record two, three, four years from now, what is WNL or what is NAD? You know, what was the quality of the examination? And so when we have incomplete records, incomplete history and physical, or what appears to be, you know, discounting the patient's signs and symptoms, that's a difficult record to defend. It's difficult for the physician to remember what he or she did, and it gives the appearance of rushing and not caring. And that's the absolute thing that you don't want to have working against you, but we see it more frequently than not. Sandy, in answer to your question, what does WNL stand for? It's we never looked, and NAD is not exactly done. So uh, we, we know what those be. The, Thank the, you. The long perspective of things, yes. And, and that's just how it's explained to a jury or how it's explained in deposition, and it's impossible to prove that you actually work the patient up. The, the idea that the way a record is generated has a, a long-term potential for problems is a kind of an interesting concept because we see more and more of our colleagues being asked to go to electronic medical records to generate histories and physicals and less and less narratives and dictation is kind of like out of favor because it's expensive, although I think most of us would view it as the kind of the, the ultimately best system. But have you had any experience with electronic medical records or? Oh, yeah, all of the above. Actually, we looked at our top 50 claims, our top 50 paid out emergency claims for beta, the hospital group of physicians, and, and we found an even split between the check box or abbreviated type of documentation, kind of the shortcut abbreviation versus the dictated record, which really surprised me because, you know, generally when you're looking at a claim file, a well-dictated record gives you a, a real good idea, for the most part, how the patient proceeded through the emergency medicine encounter, whereas the checklist system, particularly if you start to have, you know, checkbox creep, they can look hurried, incomplete, kind of a rush encounter, but we were surprised that it was just a, an absolute draw, 50 50 with looking at our 50 paid out claims. With electronic medical records, they're still new enough that we don't have a good handle on how they're going to be to defend. What we repeatedly see is that the healthcare providers, nurses and physicians, have a difficult time remembering the patient. The records are, you know, printed out well after the fact. They all kind of look clean and sterile. They're not, you know, splashed with betadine or blood or whatever. And they have difficulty remembering the specific encounter, which is unsettling for us because this medical record is hopefully going to jog your memory and you're going to remember the event or at least what you would customarily provide in the way of care, say for a patient that came in with chest pain or head pain or one of the big five diagnoses. I'm currently involved in the defense of a case in which the medical record is constructed in such a way that when the nurses put in their part into the computer, it's almost impossible for the doctors to go back and see what the nurses have written. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it might be nice for the hospital information system people down the road, but as far as communication within the department, 
it was an absolute disaster. The doctors had to do so much work to pull up whatever nursing note was written that no one had actually communicated anything about the patient. We hear of that kind of problem, the difficulty during downtime. Do they have a good workaround if the computer system goes down? All types of operational issues, and it doesn't sound like to us anyway that electronic medical record is a panacea. But kind of back to the appearance of this workup, because we've had some very troubling claims issues with that this last year with the you know the frequent flyers or the patient that's perceived to be in there as a drug seeker, when, when they're not adequately worked up and say so you've got a very short encounter and the assessment is they're just in here to get their pain medications again and you haven't addressed really the chief complaint, ruled out pertinent negatives and positives and diagnoses and documented them and then worse yet, they come back, you know, two and three times and they actually are sick, then everybody just looks bad. Yeah, we've talked, I think, uh, over in the tapes about this setup where you're not really anxious to see this patient. You're pretty sure they're a drug seeker. You may even see the needle cracks in their arms, but you hear over and over and over about the epidural abscesses that are missed in these shooters because they've got bugs in their bloodstream that settle in mm -hmm. their vertebral disc spaces mm -hmm. and how important it is not to create that drug seeker who is a drug seeker because he had, does have genuinely back pain into a somebody who's going to relieve your insurance company of large amounts of dollars. And one of the things we did talk about is being aware that SED rates are often very helpful in picking up inflammation that is occult involving these epidural and spinal abscesses. And physicians really need to know that. Rick, I think it's, it's worthwhile to comment on the fact that when we see a chart, as an emergency physician, there are five or six diagnoses that when you see those phrases on the chart, you know that you're psychologically jaded when you walk in the room. It's not that you're not going to be jaded. What the emergency doctor needs to do is clear his head and say, I know this can be a problem, so I'm not going to let it stand in the way of reasonable medical care. Mm -hmm. Because if you go to a, a medical meeting and you use the term terminal fibromyalgia, immediately there's laughter in the room. Why? Because everybody knows what that term means when they see it on the chart. What you can't do is let it get in the way of reasonable medical care for that particular visit. And that is a terrible problem. Huge problem. In fact, we just wrote a newsletter on this. And there's a terrific kind of a layman's book called How Doctors Think by a Dr. Grootman. And he talks about human factors errors. And one of the errors is based exactly on what you said, Dr. Henry. The physician relies on that first hunch. And perhaps there is a little bias in that first hunch. And they work the patient up based on what he or she, the physician, believes to be the first diagnosis. Or let's just get this encounter over and go with our first hunch. And it's called confirmation bias. And we're now seeing a couple of our larger attorney groups, plaintiff attorney groups in California, focusing in on that very issue that the physician didn't really do a comprehensive workup of the patient, but just came up with the first wrong guess of what was was wrong with the patient and then just stayed on that track to hurry up the encounter. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have with the interview with Sandy for this month, but there's more and we'll put it on upcoming CDs because she had a lot of very useful information. Nice to talk to you all and I look forward to hearing the next CD. Thanks, Sandy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So what about a wine of the month? Do you have another one of the month? I do have one to talk about. And this is a specialty. This is for people who want something to serve at dinner with the dessert course. It is an ice fine. 
And the standard prejudice, of course, is that the Europeans do everything better. Who would drink anything but French wines if Dr. Hoffman was here, that sort of thing. And, of course, the Germans tend to predominate in the ice wine business. I'm going to recommend one called Black Star Farms. Black Star Farms is actually located in my home state of Michigan. It's actually located in the Leelanau Peninsula. They have the exact same climate the exact same grapes and the exact same winemakers uh, who have come from Germany to do this. And it is a magnificent ice vine. So if you're into serving that, you only serve small amounts of that with dessert, or you can use it as an apartif if you'd like. But it's a great bargain compared to the expensive European ice vines. So this is $2? No, it's <laughs> not $2, Rick. I'm sorry about is, this. but is it Trader Joe's? <laughs> no. In <laughs> fact, it is not inexpensive, but by the same token, if you actually look at what similar wines are from the Germans right now, and particularly, you will notice that the American wines are doing very well simply because with the fall of the dollar against the euro, the cost of the excellent wines from Europe has become almost unbearable. It's very interesting that the French particularly have all kinds of laws about bringing our wines in there because the American jug wines, the the bulk wines, probably some of the best in the world. And the Australians make good jug wines, South Africans. There's a lot of good wine in the world. It's interesting the Europeans have become very protectionist about us moving those products into Europe. All right, ladies, I think you did very well this month. I learned a lot of stuff. Thank you very much, boys, and I guess we'll talk to you next month. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. And next month, can we do a little on Paps, Paps Blue Ribbon? You always bring up Paps Blue Ribbon. Or that little green bottle. Not the Heineken, hardly not. You know, the one in, from La Trobe. What's that? Meister Braille, I don't know. No, no, no. Come on now. <laughs> I'm Which not one? a big beer drinker. Yeah, yeah. We'll, I'm blocking we'll, that, baby. Anyway, we'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.